I'd encourage you to have Romans 1 open if you have a Bible, and we'll consider the things that Paul begins to share with this church in Rome as he writes to them. And we're going to discover in these verses, as we discover all through the writings of the Apostle, what it is that makes Paul tick. As a Christian man, what is it about him? Well, he reveals a lot in these verses that are both a help and an encouragement and a challenge to all of us as we read his words. I want to consider verse 8 with you, first of all, under this heading. What a church should be known for. What a church should be known for. Now, if we put it into the form of a question, what should a church be known for? Well, that's a very considerable question that should concern all of us very greatly. Are there any churches that you can think of that have a particular reputation? What, if anything, do you think Belvedere Road Church should be known for? Perhaps you know of a church because of a certain controversy. And they hit the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Well, by God's grace, we pray that that will never happen to us. Maybe a church that's known for its ministries of mercy in the local community. Some churches perhaps, perhaps known because of the vast size of their membership. It's astonishing premises and facilities. Others perhaps known for good or for ill. Over the style of its worship, its form of presentation, or the breadth and the depth and the diversity of its programs and its activities that it runs every single week. Dr. Steve Lawson, who's a Baptist pastor, well, he's retired from the pastoral ministry, but still preaching all the time over in the USA. He tells of a church that he was invited to preach at when he was still quite a young man with a view to him becoming the pastor of that church. Well, when he arrived, it was a church with a most impressive suite of buildings and a sanctuary that could seat 4,000 people. And it was full that Sunday. Indeed, it was full every Sunday. And he remembered as he stood there and the, the, the vast choir and orchestra struck up and he said, I wondered whether the doors of heaven had opened with the noise that was coming from them. Well, he became the pastor of that church. But he hadn't been there very long and he recalls how it suddenly dawned on him that very many of those 4,000 people were not saved. They really didn't know the Lord. He remembered vividly, not long after he'd arrived, he announced one Sunday morning that he was going to preach from Romans chapter 1. And he said, I almost think I saw the flowers at the front of the church wilt as it dawned upon people that I was going to preach right through this letter verse by verse. And he did so. And his fears about the unsaved state of many in that congregation proved true as they started to be saved as the word of God was proclaimed. It was a church that had a great reputation. Most of them weren't Christians. 
What is a church known for? What should a church be known for? Some churches are well known because, well, they've always been well known and no one can remember why. I suspect today lots of churches are well known because of the man who is their pastor, because he's a prominent preacher and Bible teacher, especially in this online age that we're now in. Uh, perhaps you can bring such names to mind. But let me ask you this. You may know the name of the pastor, but what do you know about the church where he's the pastor? Do you know anything about them? Aside from him, what do you know about them? What are they known for, apart from the fact that they've got a famous pastor? I remember once talking to a pastor who'd been invited to preach at a church. And that church had quite a prominent, well-known man who served as their pastor. And as he spent time with them, as he was talking to members of that church, he discovered that he was surprisingly disappointed in the people he was talking to. Not what he'd expected, given the man who was their pastor. disappointed by the people who were there well what does the apostle paul find commendable in a local church well you could actually point to a number of things he says in different places but here in romans what is it that he rejoices in that he's heard about this church what is it that brings him both joy and a sense of assurance that all is well in that church. Well, it's simply this. They are known for their faith. And he says exactly the same thing about the Thessalonian church. From you, he says to the Thessalonians, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. The fact that this reputation is something over which Paul rejoices and that he's ready to commend tells us that this faith, as he calls it, is a faith which is, it's all founded upon solid gospel truth. If this faith which he has seen and heard about in the Roman church, if this was a faith riddled with errors and heresy, there's no way he would speak of them in these terms. For example, by the time the Apostle Paul reaches a similar point in his first letter to the Corinthians, he's addressing the, the, all the disagreements that he knows exist within that church, and he's exhorting them to sort it out. Likewise, when he writes to the Galatians, by the time he reaches the sixth verse of his letter, he's saying to them, I marvel that you are turning away so soon to him who called you in the grace of Christ. So when we have those examples against which we can compare verse 8 of Romans chapter 1, we realise that what Paul is saying here regarding their faith is significant. Paul is confident that theirs is a faith soundly based upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and that their assurance as a church 
is based upon that gospel truth. If it were not so, there's no way that Paul would be speaking to them in these terms. Of course, we also know, I mentioned this a few weeks back, you find it in chapter 16, the, the very fact that Aquila and Priscilla were part of that church, a married couple who Paul previously had encountered and invited them to work with him as part of his wider gospel team. The fact that a couple like that are in Rome and have a church meeting in their own house, that goes some way also probably to explain Paul's confidence. It's the true gospel that's being preached and believed there. And the church is receiving good teaching. And don't forget, Rome was not an easy place to be a Christian. Rome was filled with every kind of vice and wickedness any sinful heart has ever been able to imagine. Sexual immorality and perversion was rife. Pagan idolatry was everywhere. And all of these things were openly and unashamedly promoted from the top down. The kind of moral and spiritual decline that we're experiencing today is not a new phenomenon in the world. Christians have been living in this kind of environment and far worse from the first century. What should be your concern when you find yourself living in the midst of such open wickedness and degradation and when the civil authorities are promoting such things just as they were in Rome, it's nothing new. This is what Christians should be concerned about. A true, living, experiential faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel. The gospel that Paul is about to expand and explain further for them. That's what matters. Being known for that is what makes a church a church. Along with some other things that we heard a few weeks ago from uh, Mr. Arlius as well. Because there's quite a few answers to that question that are all the right answer. But here is this faith, this vibrant, living, real Faith in the real gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes the church the church. And of course this is something which only God can produce. And that's why Paul begins by immediately expressing his thanks to God. Because only God can do this. As Steve Lawson discovered... There can be much about a church that just blows your socks off when you first walk in. But you discover it's all the work of men's hands. The result of this seems good to me. And people, be, people seem to be attracted by this. So let's hype that up. Christ's church is not made with human hands. Christ's church is of God. Through his gospel. And if it's not of God through his gospel, then it isn't Christ's church. Whatever it is, it isn't the church. And whatever it is, it wouldn't be something that Paul would rejoice over, as he does 
the Roman church. And when Paul thinks of the church in Rome, his first thought is to simply drop to his knees and thank God for what God has done. Because only God can produce that. Their faith in Christ is real. Their faith in Christ is known regardless of the consequences and the challenges that that would bring to them. And you can be sure it did living in a city like Rome. And far worse was yet to come. The Emperor Nero would see to that. And history tells us that the faith of these believers held firm. Because it was true, saving faith that they had. Do you? Trusting in Christ alone, the one who died on the cross for sinners, bearing our guilt and our shame, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve because of our sin, that we might be forgiven, that we might be set free, that we might receive newness of life. I'll be talking about that in more detail next week, God willing, when we look at verses 16 and 17. What a church should be known for. True, living, vibrant, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, what a Christian should be known for. As we look at the life of Paul, the example of Paul in verses 9 to 13. What a Christian should be known for. Well, how thankful we are, not just for Paul's teaching of doctrine, but for showing us what the results of that doctrine ought to look like in the life of a Christian. Because Christian doctrine is divine truth, which, when applied by the Holy Spirit, is life-changing truth. You must never forget that when, we, when we're speaking about doctrine. It is God's truth, which God by his Spirit applies into the heart and into the mind and changes everything. Almost, always keep that in mind. Doctrine, doctrine never will become something cold or distant or merely intellectual or irrelevant when you remember that it is God's divine truth which by his spirit will change you the way God intends it to change you. And Paul's going to say a lot about what the gospel is. But we see in these verses how it is that the gospel has changed Paul as a man. And what it's producing in him. And I, I, I use the word producing rather than produced. Because Paul himself is the first person to acknowledge that this is an ongoing work of God's grace within him as it is in any Christian. But God is producing it. And he has changed. And he is changing. And he is growing. And he's become useful to the Lord. And he becomes more useful to God in his gospel work. So what kind of a man is Paul? Because it's very evident that whatever it is that Paul is becoming, that's the kind of 
Christian man or woman that you or I need to be? Well, there are certain things that stand out in these verses. First of all, verse 9, we see Paul's big-heartedness towards other believers and other churches. He has this really Christian, magnanimous spirit towards others. It's a sheer delight for him to think of other believers. And he has no greater joy than to thank God for them. This is the mark of a man who loves God and who's walking closely in fellowship with God. If you have relatives or friends and you're really close to them and you have a really strong bond with them, when they marry and when they have children of their own, do you not also feel a really strong bond towards their children? Do you not feel something special towards them because of the, the relationship you, that you have with their parents? You don't have that really strong bond with their mum and dad but couldn't care less about their kids. You really feel for those children. Often they almost like become an extension of your own family. Well, that's how Paul is with other believers. That's how he is towards others who've been chosen and called by God's grace into the kingdom. Adopted by God's grace, just like God has adopted him. And he has this huge heart for them. And look how he continues through verses 10 and to 13. He longs to be with them. He's tried many times to get to them. Well, there's loads of people feeling like that at the moment in the world, isn't there? Longing to be with loved ones. Hoping dearly to be able to meet with loved ones. Paul feels like that towards other Christians and other churches. And that's normative for a Christian to feel like that towards others who are members of God's flock. Oh, to be able to be with them. Oh, to be able to meet them. That's Paul's heart towards other Christians. I wonder, is there anything of that in you or I? Is there some of that in you or I? Is there as much as there should be in you and I for other believers? Because Paul, secondly, he has this spiritual mindedness as well that comes out. It's, it's hearing of their faith in Christ which fires up a response in him. He longs to be with them, not just to be with them, but that together they might enjoy spiritual encouragement and edification one to the other. How is it for you when you meet up with another Christian? What will it be like in the, in the car park in half an hour's time? What are you going to be talking about? Your family? Your job? The latest thing you're having done on your house? What you're hoping to do on your house? Will we have a holiday this year? Did you see such and such a TV show during the week? Look at the spiritual mindedness of Paul. How is this church progressing spiritually in the gospel of Christ? That's what lays upon his heart. How are you progressing spiritually in the gospel? That's on the heart of this man. 
how can we encourage each other spiritually in the things of the gospel and in the things of Christ? That's what's on his heart for them. How can you encourage me? He has a love for these people in Christ. He wants to see them grow in faith and increase in understanding and to see them become more and more useful in Christ's service. Impart this gift to you that you might grow and increase and flourish spiritually and in the gospel. There's this spiritual mindedness in Paul and that spiritual mindedness reveals itself in his prayer life. These people, this church, they're the object of his prayers frequently. Prayer for other Christians and other churches regarding their spiritual life and their spiritual good and their preaching of the gospel and making Christ known. This constantly is the fuel for, for Paul's prayers. For the Apostle Paul, it would be a complete mystery only to ever come to God in prayer with a shopping list of people's physical needs. He, he, that's a, that would be a mystery to him, only to ever pray that way. Now, I'm not suggesting that he never prayed that way. I'm sure he did. But to only pray that way? So-and-so is sick. He or she has such and such a problem. To only pray like that means that you're way, way short of the kind of spiritual maturity that the Apostle Paul has. He wants to pray for the spiritual good of those believers in Rome. He wants to be able to come to Rome so that he can preach the gospel. The American evangelist and preacher Dale Moody said this, I must speak to God about men before I can speak to men about God. Paul is constantly bringing all of this to the Lord in prayer. Praying, praying, praying. Of course he prays about practical things. He's been praying that God might open up a way for him to go and visit them. That's a very practical thing. But it's not just because he's nosy. It's not just because he wants to go and visit them and satisfy his curiosity. It's because he longs to impart to them some spiritual good. He longs for this mutual spiritual edification that they can be one for the other. And that next shows us the, this servant attitude of Paul towards other Christians and other churches. I serve God in my spirit, in the gospel of his son. There was a large and very successful meat packaging company based in Chicago in the USA. The family name their surname was Armour, as in a suit of armour. And they, were, they traded as Armour and Company. Have you ever heard of them? Priscilla knows of them. Armour and Company. And they were a Christian family. And the story is told of Mr Armour Sr. who took a flight from Chicago. 
And a young man sat next to him on the aeroplane. And this young man didn't have a clue who he was sat next to. And he's just struck up a conversation with Mr. Armour. And they got chatting. And during the conversation, he says to Mr. Armour, so tell me, sir, uh, what is it that you do for a living? This is what Mr. Armour said. My job is to tell other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And to earn a living, I pack a little meat on the side. His company was worth millions. I'm just packing a little meat on the side. My job is to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here, you see. I serve God in my spirit. It's the very depth of my soul. With every fibre of my being... I serve God in the gospel of his son. There is no other service for God, is there? In the gospel of his son. That's it. Completely given over to my God and saviour, whom I love and serve with a full heart. Saved to serve, not to be a passive observer. You'll have heard of the Dead Sea. It's called the Dead Sea because nothing can live in it. The water is saturated with salts and minerals because water is constantly flowing into it from the River Jordan, but it never flows out anywhere. And the water just evaporates off in the heat and this mineral deposit in the water just builds and builds and builds. Vibrant spiritual life flows out in service. Or it will simply stagnate. Every day of your life, like Paul, is to be lived in service to God in your spirit, in the gospel. And you have to notice there's that very important direction. There's that very important focus to this service, which is the gospel of God. Everything about Paul is about the gospel. So, how, how can it be for us then? Well, it's about serving the Lord in your home, in your employment, in your leisure, in your recreation, in your hobby, in the church, in the gospel. To have within your spirit this sense of serving the Lord, which is all wrapped up in the gospel of Christ and making Christ known. Serving because of who and what you are now because of the gospel of Christ. If it were not for the gospel, you certainly wouldn't be sitting here this afternoon. Goodness knows what circumstance you might be in right now. Well, that was Paul. It needs to be you. It needs to be me. And we see this humble and submissive spirit in the apostle. We see it firstly towards the providential will of God. In verses 10 and 13, he talks about the way that he'd longed to come and visit them. And he says, believe me, I've tried to get to Rome. I've tried on many occasions, but on every occasion I've been hindered. I've pushed that door, but God was holding it closed and I couldn't get to you. So now I pray. And note for your, your own instruction how Paul prays. I take my request to God that by some means it may be found that I can visit you in Rome. 
But it's all in God's will. And the decision will be God's. If I get to you, it's because God has willed it for me. If I don't get to you, it's because that's what God has willed for me. Paul has made his decision. I desire to get to Rome to help these people. But he recognizes that it's God who gets to change the red light to a green one. Paul's ready to walk through the open door. But God's going to have to open it. Can we say in the right way there's kind of a restless contentment in Paul over issues like this? He's restless to get there, but at the same time, he's resting content in the will of God. So there's this, this kind of very, it's a good tension within him, longing to be able to do this in the Lord's service, but recognizing that unless the Lord says go, I'm not going anywhere. He's not moaning, he's not complaining. And then all he can do is lay his desire before the Lord and leave the Lord to decide. And of course, Paul will eventually get to Rome, but not quite in the way he intended. He'll arrive as a prisoner, but still preaching. And we see his humility in verse 12 as he speaks to them of, being able to, of them being able to encourage him. He doesn't consider them to be beneath him. And that it will all be one-way traffic uh, when I get to you. I'll be on transmit and you'll be on receive. No, not at all. Yes, I want to try and encourage you. But hey, I'm hoping that you'll encourage me. I hope there's things that I can teach you. But I'm hoping there's things that I can learn from you as well. And he's humble enough to be able to say that. He hasn't put himself on a pedestal. Maybe others have, but Paul hasn't. And fifthly, we see in Paul his desire to see souls saved. He wants to see fruit, verse 13, which can certainly be fruit in the sense of these believers growing in their faith. Because regardless of the, the reputation that they have for faith, he'll always want to see them growing. But as the apostle who's being called to take the gospel to the Gentiles Surely his inclusion of the phrase, just as among the other Gentiles, well, that's a reference to the fact that he actually wants to get there and preach the gospel and see fruit from gospel preaching and see more people be saved and seeing more people added to this church in Rome. He has this unrelenting burden to preach the gospel. He says to the Ephesian church in chapter 3 of Ephesians, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given me, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that is a burden on his heart. Paul's been chosen and equipped and commissioned and sent chiefly for this one thing, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, of course, He's also an ordinary Christian and is called as any Christian is called in lots of other ways. But he has this particular calling from the Lord upon him and it weighs upon his soul. He says to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 9, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of for necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Because he has this desire to see souls 
saved. Now, we're not all called to be preachers like Paul was. But shouldn't we all have the desire to see souls saved? And can't you pray? And can't you witness where you are? That souls might be saved? And that thought in those verses lead us on to one final and brief concluding point, which is this. The duty which must be fulfilled. The duty which must be fulfilled. Some Christians don't like the word duty because they think it clashes with the concept of grace. But when you come under God's grace, his grace puts this duty within you. The, the theologian and the writer F.F. F. Bruce puts it like this about verses 14 to 15. The preaching of the gospel is in Paul's blood. He cannot refrain from it. He is never off duty, but must constantly be at it, discharging a little more of that obligation which he owes the whole human family. Why does Paul describe himself as a debtor? Let's say Fred gives to me a £20 note and asks me to give the £20 note to Harry. I now have £20, which is for Harry. It should be in his pocket. But for now, it's put safely in mine. But it's not mine. It's his. I am now in debt to him the £20 that Fred has just given me. Now, it's not that I've borrowed £20 off Harry and I owe him that £20 back. That's usually how we think of debt. This is a different way round. This is £20 that's been entrusted to me to give to him. And I'm in debt to him, this £20, until he gets it. Until I discharge that duty to him, I am in debt to him. That is Paul's thinking regarding the gospel. Christ, he says, has laid it in my hands. And God has said to me, this gospel that I'm giving to you is for the whole world. And you, Paul, must take it to them. And especially to the Gentiles. This is from God for them. And I now am in debt to them with this gospel. God has given it to me to give to them. And I'm in debt to them until I do that. I am duty bound under God to deliver this gospel to them. That's what God has given me to do. And it's not just a legal thing. It's burning in his soul. It's who God's made him to be. He has this burning desire for them that they might know Christ and follow Christ. It's for the Greek. It's for the barbarian. It's for the wise. It's for the unwise. Theologians call this parallelism. It's two different ways of saying the same thing. 
The Greeks, the wise, educated, the philosophers, the thinkers, the civilised, the sophisticated, barbarians, the unwise, the uneducated, and as the Greeks would consider them, ignorant, uncivilised, unsophisticated dimwits. Why were they called barbarians? It was, a, it was a rather derogatory term. The Greeks would say, when a barbarian talks, it just sounds like he's going, ba, 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 ba. Literally where it came from, barbarians. From the Greeks to the barbarians and everyone in between. It's for the whole world. And God has entrusted this gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ to take to all of them. And I'm in debt to the whole world until they hear it from my lips, says Paul. As much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel. We began by considering the faith of the church in Rome. Being people of faith. People of the faith. That's what's uppermost in Paul's heart and in his mind. As much as is in him, he's ready to preach this gospel. Are you? Am I? As much as is in me, I'm ready to make Christ known. We don't have all the same gifts. We don't have all the same opportunities. But every Christian can say this, as much as is in me, as much as I am able to do for the Lord, I am ready to make Christ known. To live the kind of life which gives evidence of the grace and the power of God in me. To speak of him. Because he's placed this gospel in my hands, in your hands. And, and we are in debt to the whole world. So everyone in your world, whoever they are. Everyone in your world is not the same as everyone in my world. But everyone in your world needs the gospel from you. Everyone in my world needs the gospel from me. And if we're all doing that, and if we do it together as God's people, as a church, we're doing what God would have us do. To pass on to others this saving good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that men and women and boys and girls might have faith, real living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes Paul tick. That's what should make us tick. That's what it means to be a church.